We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning. If you want to make your way to a seat. Titus chapter 3 is where we'll be today. Titus chapter 3, if you want to find a Bible and turn there. Growing up, I had a, a neighbor who was really a close family friend of ours who had uh, been paralyzed from a, a motorcycle accident. Uh, Jimmy was his name. Um, always had always loved to go fast. And honestly, his accident didn't change that at all. Jimmy... Even in his, uh, even being in a wheelchair, he built a drag car from scratch with over a thousand horsepower that he'd run up and down the drag strip with steering equipment and everything on it. Um, but his everyday vehicle was a bit different, at least it seemed. He had a, a 72 Suburban, long and low, nothing about it said fast. It was too, was equipped with hand controls and actually had a side door for his wheelchair. You wouldn't see this. Uh, anything about this Suburban when it drove by you or you saw him pull up would make you think that it was fast in any way. But if you pop the hood, it was a different story. Jimmy Suburban was equipped with a big block engine, supercharger, high performance transmission, and he enjoyed and enjoyed talking about many people who pulled up next to him and doubted him and he would, they would see their taillights in the rearview mirror. And, you know, given the, the appearance of both uh, the driver and the car, you would never expect such performance until you pop the hood. And that was an honest conversation with him. Obviously, he would say, well, pop the hood. And this morning, I want us to pop the hood, so to speak, on the church. Uh, I've been away for a, for a week and just kind of reflecting on where we are as a church. And I want us to do that from Titus chapter 3 this morning. We'll pick back up in Nehemiah next week, but I felt it was important this morning to really pause and tackle what I want to call as a clarifying text as it relates to our witness in the world as a church. And it's a text, I think, which forces us to really pop the hood and clarify what really is the power of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question this morning. What do you think provides the church its true power. In other words, if you were to lift the hood of the church, what should you find? What provides the church, if you allow me to use the language, what provides the church its proper performance in the world? Paul, I think, does pops the hood in Titus chapter 3. Paul has high hopes for this church as he writes, but his, his hopes come not from the significance of the pastors, not from the size of the congregation or really the makeup of the people. Paul has great expectations for this little church in Crete because of what he knows is under the hood. It's the same thing under every faithful, healthy church. It's the Gospel. It's God's great work of salvation. So here's my 
sentence this morning I want to try to unpack a bit from Titus chapter 3, particularly the first seven verses. It is this, as the church, our witness in the world must remain grounded in the wonder of God's great work of salvation in us. As the church, our, our witness in the world must remain grounded in the wonder of God's great work of salvation in us. Titus chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. There's one of those great but statements, right? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in unrighteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father in heaven, we pause this morning really to just stare at and look upon what do we mean by the gospel? What do we mean by He saved us? What do we mean by salvation? Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that we would get a deeper understanding of what the Bible talks about when it means He saved us. Lord, for anyone in this room who doesn't quite grasp that meaning, and pray by the end of this text, they will see clearly who Jesus is and what He has done for them and how they can receive the riches of what we find in Christ in our text this morning. As a church, I want us to clarify things. Push things that are not essential to the side. Not because they're not important, but because we want to make sure we hold tight to and cling to what is essential. What's under the hood? The power of the gospel. What He has done. God saved us. Pray, Lord, you use our time as we move forward to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes this letter to Titus, as he calls him his true child in the faith in chapter 1, verse 4. And he's leading a church on the island of Crete about 60 miles off the coast of Greece, about 110 miles southwest of Turkey. Crete was a rather small, but but really a thriving center of civilization in Paul's day. And Paul's message is clear. If the church is to be effective as the church, the gospel must take root within her, both internally and externally as a body. In chapter 2, I read a short section of that text this morning. Paul does two things. He addresses the internal relationship of the church in chapter 2, and then he grounds it in the gospel. This morning he's going to deal with the external reality of the church and ground it as well in the gospel. 
So he turns his attention to the church's external witness in the world this morning. And doing this, Paul deals with three things in our text, I think. He addresses who we, who we are to be in light of really who we were in verses 1 through 3. So who we are to be in light of who we were. And then who we are to be in light of what God has done in us in chapters 4 through 7. I'm just going to give two broad headings over our text this morning to help us walk through it. And the first one is this, that in verses 1 through 3, I want us to see the duty of our Christian witness. The duty of our Christian witness. And then in 4 through 7, I want to really spend most of our time unpacking what I, want to see, what I see as the dynamics of the Christian gospel. So the duty of our witness and the dynamics of the Christian gospel. So first, the duty of our Christian witness, verses 1 through 3. Again, Paul's focus turns from the internal health in chapter 2 of the body to its external witness in the world here in chapter 3. Verses, let me read verses 1 through 2 again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to, obe- to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Christianity is a public faith. We must not forget that. It's not private. And while we are not to be of this world, we must be in this world. As believers, we are citizens of heaven, but we are also currently citizens of this world. And we're called to live as such. The Bible commands us to pray for those in authority. And as we see here, to obey and submit to these authorities. Now, of course, we were never called to give unconditional allegiance. But as far as our primary obedience to Christ is not compromised, we are to submit and to obey the authorities God has put in our life. He says we're also not to speak evil. must not be quarrelsome. But instead, we are to be ready for every good work. And he says, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Into verse 2. Our faith is never private, brothers and sisters. We're responsible for our witness in the world. I want to read you an email I got from a friend. I was on the East Coast last week for a, a week. An email I got from a friend of mine who's a pastor. I'll read you this email. It retains to our understanding as a witness. The person writes to his pastor. He says, I want to share my recent Easter experience with you. He said, I'm currently employed at a local grocery store where I had to work on Easter. This was bothersome to me, but I was determined to share the gospel with at least one person this day. Figured, make the best of it. I first spoke with a co-worker who is Muslim. When I asked, her, asked him why he rejects Christianity, he shared that I was, I was about to see why in just a couple hours. I continued sharing with another person who rejects all religions and I asked the same of her and she said about 10 a.m. this morning you were going to see how you Christians act 10 a.m. I listened on the headset that the management is required to wear and the store director announced get ready the Christians should be released from their churches sure enough the experience made my eyes water the worst most obnoxious and horribly rude customers were those who were dressed for church one customer jumped ahead of the line and demanded service because they were in a hurry had to get off the church Others demanded that we work faster because they were in a hurry to get to church. There was also the select few that demanded to get a gift certificate for their rotisserie chicken since our policy guarantees rotisseries hot and available from 10 to 7 p.m. or they're free. It was even harder to share the gospel in the break room since most perceived Christians to be stuck up 
rude, and inconsiderate. The power of the gospel must characterize both our relationships within the church, but our witness outside as a church. The gospel demands a proper witness. And this gospel, I think, goes well beyond grocery store experiences. This involves our banter on social media. And look, I want to say to, you, to all of us and myself that that's especially true in this polarizing political season we're moving forward through as a church. Look, we're citizens of this kingdom for now. Yeah. We should care. We should be passionate if you feel it's your place about politics in one sense. There's a good place for that. But our passion and our posture must speak to the reality that we are also citizens of another country far greater than this one. We need to be thinking about our witness as a church. Who's listening? Who's watching? And how are we standing for our convictions but honoring Christ in the midst of it? Why should we care about our witness in this world? Because all of the brokenness which characterizes this fallen world previously before Christ characterized us. Our, our witness in the world should be driven by a humble awareness as we see in verse 3. Look at it. For we ourselves... We're once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's one of my favorite preachers so often says, I said it this morning, the Christian life is a two-volume book. There is a before and an after for the Christian. And we must not forget who we were before Christ and who we currently would be without Christ. Forgetfulness is a dangerous, slippery path we can fall down to on as Christians that often leads to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness really does cripple the Christian faith. It destroys our witness and it distorts the gospel, the message of grace, which should never be a people who turn our noses up. As Christians saved by the grace of God, we should be the most compassionate, empathetic people in the world. Why? Because we know what it was like. We were just as broken, just as rebellious, just as enslaved, and just as hopeless. Our previous plight was hopeless apart from Christ. So compassion, not contempt, is the Christian posture in the world. And our compassion stems from remembrance of who we once were. Foolish and disobedient. We were both mentally and morally corrupt. Sin produces a lack of sense and sensibility. We were deceived and enslaved by various passions and pleasures. Interestingly, both of these verbs are in the passive tense, showing how we were controlled by these passions and pleasures. In other words, we were not just foolish, we were deceived. We were not just disobedient, we were enslaved to our sin. Then we see the ugly twins here of malice and envy characterizing us. We wished evil upon our enemies and we envied those who we who had what we wanted. Selfishness defined us. At the end of verse 3 he says hated by others and hating one another. This was our 
plight, brothers and sisters. And still would be if not for the grace of God in Christ. Former slave trader turned pastor and great hymn writer John Newton said it best. When asked about his former life, he responded, All I know is I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. These two twin realities must remain ever before us. Because here's what I think we have to remember. To the depth we understand our sin is to the extent we will value our salvation. If we never reflect upon our before, we will not savor the beauty of our now and the future, our salvation. Once we were, but now we are, is the great paradigm every Christian must live within. Once we were, but now we are. It's the great paradigm, I think, which must inform our witness in this world. This is where Paul takes us and where I want to spend the rest of our time here. He wants the church in Crete to look back and remember who they were apart from Christ. But now he pops the hood. He moves from the duty of the Christian witness to the dynamics of the Christian gospel. Christian living only emerges out of Christian truth. Out of Christian doctrine, what God has done. We do in light of what He's done. And what has He done? We find it in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's what He's done. So we want to unpack that. The dynamics of the Christian gospel here in verses 4 through 7. This whole section hangs on this phrase, He saved us. Paul wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation is God's great work. And furthermore, if you are a Christian this morning, it's God's great work in you. There's a difference between God's great work and God's great work in you. He did this. He accomplished this. He carried it out. He's responsible for it. That's Paul's point. This only makes sense. If we were deceived and enslaved to our sin, then There's an obvious point here. We cannot save ourselves. We need rescue. The source of our salvation must be completely outside of us. It is God Himself. This is a a very important reality to remember. What you believe about sin will dictate your understanding of salvation. When you go to the doctor, the extent of the ailment always informs the prescription given, right? If sin is simply making a mistake, then salvation is nothing more than an apology. If sin is just bad decisions, then salvation involves making better decisions. If sin is wrong thinking, then salvation comes through education. But if sin is what the Bible says it is, if it's enslavement, if it's separation from God, if it's spiritual death, then we are hopeless without someone outside of us acting on our behalf. And that is the gospel message. It's exactly what we find in the gospel. The source of our salvation must be, has to be, God alone. I'm making a point here because I want you to pay attention. I want you to pay attention to what you, the way you hear the Christian message presented today. 
Because it's often not presented as such. It's presented as you have something inside of you. Salvation is there. You have it. You just need to get a little education, make better decisions, and you can really save yourself. Jesus will help you along your path. That's tickling of ears. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel says we need God to do something. Apart from Him, we cannot do it. Salvation is totally God's work. So from the rest of our time, I'm going to look at five aspects of God's work in salvation. And I really want to see how they're all intertwined together. All right. So the first is this. Salvation is God's work of love and kindness. Chapter 2, Paul described God's appearing. I read it as our call to worship in Jesus in terms of His grace and His glory. But now His appearing is wrapped up in goodness and love, verse 4 says. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. This word goodness or kindness literally means goodness of heart. God is kind towards sinners like you and me. The reality is He would have been perfectly just to pour out His punishment and wrath upon us for our sin. But instead of wrath, we get kindness. We get love. The word here for love or loving kindness is where we get our word philanthropy. The love of humanity. Love for mankind. God possesses a strong affection and compassion towards humanity. God's heart is inclined towards our goodness. He is the, in the highest sense, He's a philanthropist. So first, salvation is God's work of love and kindness towards us. But it's also God's work of mercy. God's love, kindness, and compassion spills over in His mercy. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God giving us what we do not giving us what we do deserve. If you're a Christian this morning, you owe it to God's mercy. Period. You don't deserve salvation. You deserve punishment for your sin. The Bible says, but God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2. Notice how Paul qualifies this statement here. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. We make no contribution to our salvation. In no way can we earn our salvation. In no way do we deserve our salvation. In no way do we contribute to our salvation. Your rescue from sin, your deliverance from death and hell, your transformation comes from God and God alone. Your works, no matter how good or righteous they may be, will never save you. Paul knows this. Philippians chapter 3, he makes it clear just how foolish it is for us to trust in our works for salvation. If anyone could obtain salvation through righteous works, it was Paul. He had the right birth. He had the right religious pedigree. In relation to observing the Jewish law, the external law, he said he was blameless. Paul's conclusion. Philippians chapter 3, 
verses 7 through 9. He says this. After listing all of his pedigree, his birth, all of his religious activity, he says this. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul describes his works as rubbish. Point being, in relation to salvation, his works, your works, my works, are utterly useless. It's not that good works aren't important. They're necessary as a demonstration that we have received the gospel. But our good works can never earn us the gospel. Maybe we say it this way. Us attempting, if you're sitting here this morning and you think that you want to be saved, so you need to come to church, and get your act together, maybe be baptized, and religious activity will save you, that your works in and of themselves will save you. This is actually an affront to God. It's really as though when you say something of that, that you're going to earn your salvation, that you're going to do enough to earn God's affection to save you. It's really a a slap in the face to God. In God's kindness, love, and mercy, He sent His one and only Son to die a sacrificial death on the cross to bring your salvation. And now by you trying to earn your salvation, you're saying to God, it's not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. Your son's death is not good enough for me. I want to earn my salvation on my own. I want to add to it. But you can't. Salvation is not possible on those terms. Your works of righteousness will not save you. The basis of God's saving work is His mercy made possible through the death of His Son on your behalf. So the third aspect here. Salvation is God's also His work of the Holy Spirit. Paul directs us now towards the the how of our salvation. Verse 5, look at it. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration or new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This word regeneration means to be born again or to receive new life, which only God can do. Salvation is not just God's work, though. It's God's work in us. Salvation requires new life, or literally a new birth, as the Bible calls it. Regeneration consists negatively of cleansing, positively of a renewing of both brought about by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration washes away, makes us clean through the new birth. Look, this imagery of washing here is is not a reference to baptism per se. For it is the Holy Spirit who is washing us, not externally, but internally. Baptism is important and essential. But baptism portrays 
what the Holy Spirit performs. Baptism doesn't perform anything. It portrays what has already been performed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Make sense? The reference being alluded to here by Paul makes this internal nature of washing undeniable. The reference is from Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, where the prophet writes concerning, at that point in redemptive history, a future salvation which we now know has come through Christ. He says this in verse 25 of Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. This act of the new birth, this act of the spirit brings about an internal cleansing and a washing away of our sins. But it also renews us through his, this new birth comes new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Holy Spirit not only cleanses us through our new birth, but the, the Holy Spirit, He also renews us, making all things new in Christ. Simple question. Have you experienced the new birth? Profound question. A question I don't think you ought to just walk over too quickly. Salvation requires a spiritual, Holy Spirit work within you. It requires your surrender to Christ. The new birth is a a work in you by God, not a work by you. Becoming a Christian is not about cleaning your life up. It's not about doing anything that, so that God will accept you. It's about surrendering to Him. It's about repenting and placing faith in Christ. Accepting His work and having it applied to you by the Holy Spirit. That can happen today. You can experience God's new birth this morning. Your brokenness the before is actually your strength, where strength is found. Your surrender is where your victory is taken hold of. It requires a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Fourthly, salvation is a work of God in Christ. All these great benefits of our salvation are only accessible to us through Christ and Christ alone. Verses 5 and 6 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God's work of love and kindness, God's work of mercy, God's work of the Spirit have all been poured out on us richly, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Notice here the the Trinitarian work of God in our salvation. He said, He saved us. The Father. 
by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Like I know sometimes we can think about the doctrine of the Trinity as some abstract theological speculation. And it's true, it has a level of mystery to it, but if we think it's abstract theological speculation, we are off the, way off the path. The reality of the Trinity, the biblical teaching that God is one in three distinct persons is essential to accomplishing our salvation. The Father planned our salvation. Jesus the Son accomplished our salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us through the new birth. Think about it. All of God, all of His unity and diversity co-acted in accomplishing our salvation. Salvation is the work of God. All of God poured out on us richly in Jesus Christ. Lastly, salvation is a purposeful work. It's God's purposeful work. God's work in salvation has an aim. It has, a, it has a goal, it has a purpose. We know this through the phrase, so that, in verse 7. Paul's building an argument. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our salvation is based upon God's grace alone. And by God's grace we have been justified, made right with God. We're no longer enemies separated from God. We're brought near to Him in Christ. For the purpose, though. For becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation in the New Testament is, is often defined in familial terms. For instance, in Christ we become children of God or sons and daughters of God. And as sons and daughters we are Heirs, the Bible says, meaning we receive an inheritance. Julie and I have two dear friends back on the East Coast who have adopted at this point four children from Uganda. In their previous setting in Uganda, these children literally had nothing. No family. In one sense, no real future the way we would think about it. No, no options. They barely had enough food and water to drink. They were bound by the structures that held them. But they went through this long process of adoption. Expensive process. A lot of back and forth. A lot of praying. A lot of meetings. But all of that came to a head in one moment. It came to a, a head in a courtroom setting. Where the judge... Slammed down the gavel. And he declared the adoption final. These children received a, a new last name at that moment. Instantly. The moment that declaration had been made, all that belonged to the Sandridges became theirs. They became heirs. Through the adoption process, all that belonged to our friends was now theirs. They received a, a new life and all that belonged to their parents. 
brothers and sisters, in a much greater way, this is what happens to us at the moment of our salvation, the moment we are justified, the moment we accept Christ, the new birth takes root in our heart. We become heirs, co-heirs, as the Bible says, with Christ. We receive a, a wonderful, glorious, and unimaginable inheritance. A hope of eternal life. Life forever with Christ and one another. Removed from the, the presence, the pressure, the problems, and yes, the plague of sin. God's work of salvation is purposeful. It's to make us an heir. A co-heir with Christ. And to give us a glorious future. I, I don't know what your past looked like. Oftentimes that comes at you in ways that out of your control. Pressures and things happen to you that wrecked your life and caused pain. Defined you in ways you don't quite know what to do with. But let me say this to you this morning. In Christ, what characterized you in the past does not define you in the future. You're his. You're an heir. When the gavel went down, all that belongs to Christ is yours in him. In closing, I just want to bring us back to Paul's main point in this section. He saved us. Three words. Three significant words loaded with life-changing, eternal implications. Now I want you to consider for a minute. He saved us. What that is not saying. That is not saying that you can save yourself. That is not saying that you have to do something or become something in order to receive what He has for you. It says, He saved us. We as the body of Christ, we must grasp the all-embracing character of this salvation. God did it. He accomplished it. The person of His Son. We must accept, embrace, and experience the benefits of our salvation so that we can share them with the world around us. Because all that we do in this life and the next must be informed by God's great work, salvation in us. If you're not here this morning, I want you to hear again afresh the wonder of the gospel. That you are a sinner. There's no good people in this church. I want you to hear that. You do not see a good pastor standing behind a pulpit up here. You see a fallen, broken, rebellious man who has been found in Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Say this else to you. 
there will be no good people in heaven. They'll be redeemed, cleansed, sinners in heaven. So if you're here this morning and your tendency is to look to your left shoulder and your right shoulder and say, I can't be a Christian because I'm not that. God doesn't care. He calls you to receive what he has for you in his son. You are a sinner. You need his rescue. But he has accomplished everything you need in Christ. You have to repent. Turn from your sins. Do an about face. And turn to him and receive everything I just tried to lay out to you in Christ. You can do that today. Church, as the church, our our witness in the world must remain grounded in the wonder, it's an important word, of God's great work of salvation in us. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, my my heart, my intent this morning is, Lord, to, to try to receive, a, to try to help lift a, a weight off of our backs in this room. Lord, we, we cannot save ourselves. That is, a, that is a load that's too heavy. And I've been there. I've tried to carry it. It's a burden. If we're trying to save ourselves, it's a burden that's too heavy. It's an uphill reality that we'll never get to the top of. But the beautiful reality is you don't call us to come to the top. You send your son down to us. You, he saved us. If anyone in this room this morning is walking in here with a misconception about Christianity, that they have to do and earn or be something in order to become a Christian. Lord, I pray this morning you would convict them of that really lie. They would see in this text this morning all that you've done for them in Christ. And the simple call that it is for them to turn from themselves and to embrace you and to call out to you. They would deal with you this morning in the text. And Lord, for us as Christians, for my own heart, Lord, I pray I wouldn't emphasize lesser things which distort the truth of what we heard this morning. Salvation is your work. The gospel is your reality. You did it. You accomplished it. I just get to partake in it. Let us be that way as a church. Let us guard our witness. Let us be faithful to you. Let us keep the gospel center in our lives, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.